It is wolves I mean to hunt, the motivations of the Red Wedding conspirators. So the writing of this began as simply an exercise for me to organize my thoughts regarding the Red Wedding for an episode of Davos Fingers. As I jotted down scattered notes, I eventually molded everything into what I feel is at least a somewhat cohesive look at the Red Wedding conspirators. Thus, the purpose of this piece isn't so much to present new theories or groundbreaking discoveries, but rather to offer a comprehensive look into the motivations of those that planned the Red Wedding. Tywin Lannister is often viewed as the mastermind behind the Red Wedding. Indeed, most accounts agree that he gave both direction and promises of reward to his co-conspirators, the Freys, Westerlings, and Roose Bolton. A careful study of the motivations of each of these parties, however, yields some interesting insights into who participated in the planning of the Red Wedding, the part they played, and why they chose to do so. So in this essay, an attempt will be made to unravel the lines of communication, the chronology, motivations, and the alliances within alliances that make up the Red Wedding conspiracy. So first, a note on the self-interests and motivations of those who planned the Red Wedding, uh, the understanding of which is key to discovering why they did what they did. So the Red Wedding is rightfully viewed as a pinnacle moment in the A Song of Ice and Fire series. Indeed, the aftershocks of this gruesome event rippled throughout Westeros and even beyond, changing the course of history and the destinies of many. But despite all the careful planning, scheming, and patience displayed by the Lannisters, Freys, Boltons, and even the Westerlings leading up to this pivotal scene, the act itself was but a means to a greater end. As they saw it, there was something far grander on the horizon for each of their houses, and the Red Wedding served as simply a vessel for getting them there. For Sybil and Rolf Spicer, it was a ticket out from under poverty and obscurity at the crag. For the phrase, it meant again coming out on the side of the winner, and as we'll look at later, gaining greater control and influence over the Riverlands. For Roose Bolton, it allowed him to assume the mantle of Warden of the North from House Stark, gaining with it all its accompanying benefits. And for Tywin Lannister, it was a means for removing perhaps his most dangerous rival in the War of the Five Kings, indeed the only one he felt he really had left, as well as gaining strategic alliances for the future without losing much in return. In short, the Red Wedding was a power play of epic proportions where lives would be told, long-held traditions would be broken, and hundreds of souls would perish. The Boltons, Freys, Westerlings, and Lannisters would not agree to such actions if those actions did not serve to dramatically advance the standing fortunes and futures of their houses. Ruse Bolton, patient and opportunistic. The world of ice and fire reminds us that the enmity between the Starks and Boltons went back to the long night itself, it is claimed. The wars between these two ancient families were legion. The world of ice and fire. The North. Despite this tumultuous history, more peaceful times had recently prevailed in the North. Even at the onset of the War of the Five Kings, Roos Bolton plays the part of loyal bannerman, earning Rob and Catelyn's respect to the degree that he is given command of Rob's foot for the invasion of the South. Even so, Roos is driven primarily to advance the interests of House Bolton in the North. And House Stark, as Warden of the North, serves as a symbolic glass ceiling, stunting any Bolton growth to prominence. 
A Song of Ice and Fire luminary, Brendan Beefish of The Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, postulates that as early as the Battle of the Green Fork, Roos, while not outwardly turning cloak on Rob Stark, is nevertheless undermining him by slowly bleeding Stark loyalist forces, all the while quietly keeping his own troops out of harm's way. Ruse was furthering his own ambition. He hitched his horse to Eddard Starks during Robert's rebellion and then attempted to undermine him at the Trident. He later hitched his own ambition onto Rob Stark when he called his banners. And in his capacity as a subordinate commander in Rob Stark's army, he undermined Rob Stark's legitimacy and his combat power. Brendan B. Fish, Early Evidence of Ruse Bolton's Treachery. At the Green Fork, the Sack of Derry, the Battle of Duskendale, and at the crossing of the Ruby Ford, Roos commits northern houses such as the Glovers, Tallhearts, Carewinds, Manderleys, Hornwoods, and others, all while keeping his own troops off the front lines. And in the case of the Ruby Ford, he keeps fray forces out of harm's way as well. Blatant disloyalty? No but certainly a precursor of things to come as Roos patiently inches closer to establishing Bolton supremacy in the North. With Roos's lustful intentions in mind, one could reason that he initiated communication with Tywin Lannister as early as the Green Fork, suggesting to the head of House Lannister that they shared a common enemy in Robb Stark. There's no scheming, no coordinated efforts at this point, just the extension of the olive branch at the onset of what would prove to be a bloody Riverlands campaign. The fact that Roos and Tywin were in reasonably close proximity to each other during this time only furthers the suspicion. Or perhaps not. Roos could have acted under his own volition in the early stages of the War of the Five Kings, perhaps to build a body of evidence to prove his sincerity, and only later contact and present that body of evidence to Tywin. In any case, we can say with more confidence that Tywin and Roos were communicating by the time Roos held Harrenhal and ordered the ill-fated attack on Duskendale, a move, of course, that Tywin seemed to anticipate and was well prepared for. A large force of Northmen under Helmand Tallhart and Robert Glover are descending toward Duskendale. I've sent Lord Tarly to meet them, while Sir Gregor drives up the King's Road to cut off their retreat. Tallheart and Glover will be caught between them, with a third of Stark's strength. A storm of swords. Tyrion won. The decision to send a third of Rob's foot to Duskendale understandably confounds Rob Stark when he hears of it. But for Roose Bolton, who had just received word of Stannis' defeat at the Blackwater and the subsequent Lannister alliance with the enormous armies of the Reach, it served to act as sacrificial proof that he was Tywin Lannister's man, and ready to fully commit to bringing down the king in the north. And in regards to Roos at Harrenhal, it could be said that Tywin Lannister left the cruel yet simple-minded Amory Lorch, rather than a more qualified commander, in charge of Harrenhal simply to make it that much easier for Roos to later take the castle himself. But whether at the Green Fork, later at Harrenhal, or sometime in between, I would maintain that it was Roos who initiated communication with Tywin first. It all hinges again on motivations. Tywin certainly wanted to beat Robb Stark, but was he going to go down the list of northern lords wondering who he could start scheming with? And perhaps, it's not wholly out of character for someone of the strategic ilk of Tywin Lannister, 
but perhaps not likely for a man currently in Tywin's position. Roose Bolton, however, knew exactly what he wanted. He wanted the North. He knew he could get it, but he'd need help. And he knew he could get that help from Tywin Lannister. As the old proverb goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So with that in mind, I would contend that Roose had the more immediate motivation to contact Tywin than vice versa, and therefore Roose opened the line of communication. Now Tywin, for his part, can view this as a low-risk move. He's made no promises to Roose Bolton yet, no commitment of manpower nor resources, and he can take comfort knowing that Roose has his own motivations and therefore little reason to change his mind. Tywin has no reason to worry. Roos's desires for northern dominance will keep him firmly and predictably in line. Roping in the phrase. Now at some point after the Battle of the Green Fork, and likely while encamped at the Twins before moving to take Harrenhal, Roos Bolton initiates contact with the phrase. It could be asked why the historically cautious phrase would even be interested in an alliance with Roos Bolton in the first place. The answer again lay in analyzing motivations. The Freys are interested in coming out on the winning side. Remember, during Robert's Rebellion, they were willing to sacrifice pride by choosing a side only at the end of the conflict, as long as it meant being on the side of the victors. The Darius and the Rigers and the Moontons had sworn oaths to River Run as well, Yet they had fought with Rhaegar Targaryen on the Trident, while Lord Frey had arrived with his levies well after the battle was over, leaving some doubt as to which army he had planned to join. Theirs, he had assured the victors solemnly in the aftermath, but ever after, her father had called him the late Lord Frey. A Game of Thrones, Catelyn V. So it is in their dealings with the Lords of the North. The Rob Stark alliance may have sounded good initially, the phrase ally themselves with a new king in the north who had the potential to not only win the war, but also provide them with spoils that the crown simply would not be willing to part with. But perhaps Roos Bolton offered them something even better, something they've long coveted, greater control of the Riverlands. And currently, with the Tollys already allied with the Starks, the phrase, while perhaps on the winning side, remain begrudging vassals to River Run. As Jamie Lannister explained, Every great lord has unruly bannermen who envy him his place. Foster Tully had Walder Frey. Only strength keeps such men in their place. A storm of swords. Jamie Seven. But if Rob Stark, and by extension House Tully, can be removed from power, if their strength can be diminished, the door opens for House Frey to significantly increase their standing in the Riverlands. Even as the title of Lord Paramount of the Trident passes from House Tully to House Baelish after the Battle of the Blackwater, Riverrun remains a prize worth fighting for. From Tywin's conversation with members of the small council after the Red Wedding, we find that Walder Frey had intended to keep Catelyn captive, but perhaps something went awry. Was this to perhaps force a marriage that would further his claim on Riverrun? even though he already got a marriage from Edmure and Rosslyn? Or perhaps to use her as a hostage in order to subject Edmure Tully? In any case, we have evidence of a Bolton-Frey alliance as early as Roos's occupation of Harrenhal. 
even before Roos's declaration to Arya slash Nan that it is wolves I mean to hunt, there are a couple small but potentially key indicators of this alliance. First, we find that Roos has married Walder's granddaughter, Walda. The reason for this marriage, as given by Roos, is that my lord of Frey offered me my bride's weight in silver for a dowry, so I chose accordingly. But what if this marriage was also a sealing of the pact made between the two houses? Just as the alliance between Frey and Stark was to be sealed by marriage, so it could have been with Frey and Bolton. Furthermore, and this is admittedly a reach, what if the love letters frequently written by Walda to Roos are actually coded messages reassuring Roos of the Frey's continued good faith? I count the days until you share my bed again. Return to me soon and I will give you many true-born sons to take the place of your dear Domeric and rule the Dreadfort after you. A Clash of Kings, Arya Ten. Could this be cryptic language reassuring Bolton of continued Frey support? Perhaps. Or it could just be the pining of an enamored bride. Either way, it is interesting to consider that Roos burns both Walda's letters as well as the old books he examines at Harrenhal after reading them. Now, perhaps both contain intelligence, the latter being left by Tywin before he himself left Harrenhal. The second more apparent indicator of an alliance comes during the rather awkward scene of Roos holding counsel with his subordinate commanders while naked and being leeched. And all these commanders happen to be, you guessed it, Freys. At this time, the Freys caution that Heron Hall should be abandoned before Tywin Lannister can lay siege to the fortress. To this, Roos calmly replies, Lord Tywin is many leagues from here. He has many matters yet to settle at King's Landing. He will not march on Heron Hall for some time. A Clash of Kings. Arya Ten. This statement could be taken simply as the quiet confidence of a cunning battle commander. Or it could be actual certain knowledge of Tywin's intentions. And when Aenys Frey challenges Lord Bolton by saying, You do not know the Lannisters as we do, my lord. King Stannis thought that Lord Tywin was a thousand leagues away as well, and it undid him. Roose's terse response of, I am not a man to be undone, sir breeds even more confidence that he knows exactly what Tywin is doing. Now, owing that we already know Tywin and Roose were communicating, this should come as no surprise. And due to their apparently sincere incredulity as to Tywin's intentions, it can be safely inferred that Roose has not informed the phrase of his alliance with the Lannisters. Or at least, not with these particular phrase. He could have told Walder. Now, whether or not Roose had told Tywin of the Frey alliance is less clear, Although it would make sense for Roos to be transparent with Tywin here to demonstrate the additional manpower he had at his disposal. Now it should be noted here that the phrase, always hoping to come out on top, had lost faith in Rob's ability to win the war at this point. As Sir Hostein laments, someone must have the courage to say it. The war is lost. Knowing this, it's not unreasonable to believe that Walder Frey would already be looking for a way out of his alliance with the Starks in the hopes of arranging something more beneficial. Again, to come out of the war on the right side and perhaps even gain something in the process. And Roose Bolton 
if he could remove Rob Stark and the Tullys from power, would prove to be that better option. The Opportunistic Westerlings As Roose Bolton continued to communicate with both Tywin and Walder, Rob continued his campaign in the Westerlands. And when he took the relatively undefended crag, another family saw an opportunity to act. So even the casual reader of the series is familiar with the story as told by Rob Stark about his first encounters with one Jane Westerling. I took her castle, and she took my heart. I took an arrow in the arm just before Sir Rolf yielded us the castle. It seemed nothing at first, but it festered. Jane had me taken to her own bed, and she nursed me until the fever passed. And she was with me when the great John brought me the news of of Winterfell, of Bran and Rickon. That night, she she comforted me, Mother. A storm of swords, Catelyn, too. And when Catelyn asks if he, out of duty, wedded her the next day, she's not surprised when the honor-bound Rob replies, it was the only honorable thing to do. Catelyn may not have been the only one who knew of the famed Stark honor, Sybil Spicer, Lady of the Crag and wife of the P.O.W. Gawain Westerling, was certainly aware of the diminished reputation of her house and was anxious for an opportunity to improve that standing. Thus, when an injured Rob Stark takes temporary residence in her home, she devises a plot, using her lovely daughter as the means for Rob Stark to break his oath to the phrase providing an impactful assist to Tywin Lannister, the liege lord who would otherwise have no time for her inconsequential family. Now, this previous statement carries with it an enormous amount of speculation. But again, it comes back to motivations. The Westerlings are a house that is desperately seeking to pull themselves up from the lower ranks. And furthermore, Sybil hails from House Spicer, a fairly new house born from a line of up-jumped merchants, as Jamie recalls, and Sybil Spicer, from what is seen of her in A Clash of Kings, certainly proves to carry with her a certain amount of callous ruthlessness. As soon as she, probably in cahoots with her brother Rolf, devised their plan, they could have initiated contact with Tywin, letting him know of their intentions and that they are his to command. At that point, Tywin could have given the instructions about providing Jane with secret doses of moon tea, as well as assurances of reward. And in this case, the rewards match the Westerling motivations. Lands in the form of Castamere for Rolf Spicer, and also marriages for Sybil's two daughters. Lords or heirs, Tywin swore to me, not younger sons nor household knights, Sybil affirms. Jamie concludes that marriage and titles, even for the widowed Jane, could go a long way in restoring respect to the Westerlings of the Crag. The Westerlings were impoverished. Younger sons would have been the best that Sybil Spicer's daughters could have hoped for in the ordinary course of events, but a nice fat pot of Lannister gold would make even a dead rebel's widow look attractive to some, Lord. A Clash of Kings, Jamie Seven. This act of assisting Tywin Lannister and lessening Rob Stark's hold on the Riverlands and Westerlands could be the Westerlings' ticket back to legitimacy. However, it could also be that Tywin made the initial contact with Sibel, perhaps strategically predicting that Rob would seek to take the crag. 
Tywin could have sent a raven ahead to Sibel, instructing her to let the castle fall into Stark hands and use her daughter to seduce him. This plan, however, would require a lot of variables to go Tywin's way, and it's perhaps unlikely that Tywin would be willing to gamble on matters of this much importance. It would also require a fair amount of logged travel miles, with a scout needing to observe Rob's movements in the west, report back to Tywin, and then Tywin dispatch instructions to the crag. So with this in mind, I'd conclude that it's more likely that Sibel seized the opportunity to enter into the good graces of her liege lord by devising a plan, executing it, and then informing Tywin while at the same time seeking further instruction. And as long as proof of communication between Sibel and Tywin is never found, this is a rather low-risk move for the Westerlings, who, if ever questioned, can simply chalk it all up to lust. There's no bloody knife, no dead assassin, just two teenagers in love. So it's indeed possible, even under this theory, that Jane Westerling had no idea of the part she was playing. Her grief over the loss of her husband and defiance at her mother at least seems sincere when Jamie Lannister later sees her in A Feast for Crows. Now, knowing what we do of Sibel, it's possible that she simply manipulated circumstances for Rob and Jane to be alone and then let nature run its course. Now, of note here is that it appears Sibel's only role in the Red Wedding was to facilitate Rob breaking his oath to the phrase. As Tywin would later tell Tyrion, players in the planning of the Red Wedding were only told as much as they needed to know and Sibel's part had been played after Jane and Rob were married. She did not know, nor did she need to know, that her son-in-law would later die because of the plan she had hatched. In fact, she herself later admits that she would not have allowed her son, Reynold, to accompany Rob to the twins had she known what would happen. Thus we see that Tywin is currently carrying on conversations with both the Boltons and the Westerlings, and while it appears that Tywin's connection with the phrase is only via ruse at this point, a more direct line of communication would soon be established. A nice day for a red wedding. So, it happens. Rob marries Jane Westerling, thereby breaking his oath to House Frey. At this point, direct communication is established between the phrase and Tywin Lannister, although who started the conversation is up for debate. On one hand, Tywin, knowing of Sibel's plot to use Jane, could have tipped off the phrase that Rob would soon be breaking his oath to them. But that feels a little out of character for Tywin, who more often than not set pieces in motion and then watched them fall into place on their own. More likely, Tywin allowed the phrase to find out about Rob's transgression, patiently waiting for them to come to him. Indeed, Tywin telling Tyrion, I suppose you could have spared the boy and told Lord Frey you had no need of his allegiance, implies that Walder came to Tywin with an offer, and Tywin responded in kind. Furthermore, Merit Frey thinks, Rob shamed us. We had to cleanse the stain on our honor. Again suggesting that it was the phrase who took action. And of course, Tywin was expectantly waiting. 
And while the Freys claimed their actions were purely a response to Rob breaking his oath to them, I would expect that this was actually but an excuse for them to do what they ultimately had been planning for some time, to absolve their allegiance with Rob for something better. And after allying themselves with Tywin and continuing their alliance with Roose Bolton, the Freys felt secure enough to come off the fence and make a decision that would further the interests and standing of their own house. Walder Frey would never have dared such a thing without a promise of protection. Now, thus we see that all lines of communication from the Freys to the Boltons to the Westerlings now lead back to Tywin Lannister. Comfortable in a high-level position that allows for both security and personal reward, Tywin follows his normal protocol of stepping back and allowing the Red Wedding to happen. According to Merritt Frey, the logistics of the Red Wedding were primarily planned by Walder and Ryman Frey, as well as Roose Bolton. If Tywin was more involved in the actual logistical planning, Merritt was unaware of it. This again conveniently reflects Tywin's tendency to set plans in motion and then let them play out, reaping the rewards while avoiding direct responsibility. As Tywin points out, the blood is on Walder Frey's hands, not mine. In conclusion, we can see that Tywin was perhaps the central component of the Red Wedding, even if he'd limited his own direct involvement in the act. Much like the CEO of a company leads in determining vision and outcome, but leaves the execution to subordinates, Tywin helped guide his co-conspirators into positions that would lead to success. But then he allowed them to do the dirty work. Now, speaking in such terms, let us not forget that others, such as Roose Bolton, perhaps deserve more credit than they are commonly given. In fact, it could be said that Bolton, with his long-held desires for the North and enmity towards House Stark, provided the pretext and initial push for what eventually evolved into the entire Red Wedding conspiracy. Tywin, however, did seem to conveniently establish himself as the central figure, providing both high-level direction and promises of rewards. Rewards great enough to encourage other conspirators to see the Red Wedding through to its grisly completion. Now, speaking of rewards, we here recall an earlier statement emphasizing that the Red Wedding was not the end goal of the Lannisters, Boltons, Freys, and Westerlings. Rather, it was a singular, common means for each of these houses to achieve greater objectives in line with their self-interests. And as we recall what those self-interests were, we see they were all conveniently met when Tywin Lannister doled out the spoils of victory. The Freys, specifically Emmon Frey, were given River Run. Roose Bolton was named Warden of the North and given Winterfell as well as quote-unquote Arya Stark to further his claim. Rolf Spicer was given Castamere, and Sibel Spicer was promised marriages into highly regarded families. But, as CEOs often do, it was Tywin who ultimately comes out on top. As he reveals to Tyrion, my object was to rid us of a dangerous enemy as cheaply as I could. Indeed, even while it seems Tywin is rewarding his co-conspirators handsomely while taking none of the spoils for himself, we can actually see how significantly he profits through what he apparently gives away. Namely, while the Freys were given River Run, Tywin's sister Jenna 
Emmons' wife, who shares Tywin's authoritarian tendencies, provided House Lannister with additional access into the politics of the Riverlands. River Run is as much the Lannisters as it is the phrase. This is furthered by sons of House Lannister, Lancel and Davin, taking Frey brides as part of the deal. Now, in regards to Roose Bolton being given the North, Tywin later reveals to Tyrion that his intention was to let Roose return to Winterfell as Warden of the North, weaken himself by fighting with the Ironborn while eventually removing them, and thereby pave the way for Tyrion and Sansa to swoop in and plant their son on Winterfell's throne, securing a Lannister hold on the North. So in conclusion, while Tywin Lannister is often perceived as the primary architect of the Red Wedding, we see that the Freys, Westerlings, and Boltons all played central roles in its development and execution. Roose Bolton provided pretext, Sibel Spicer seized upon an opportunity, and the Freys were willing to do the dirty work. The end result benefited Tywin by removing his most dangerous threat, but also set his co-conspirators up with what they considered to be significant advancements worthy of their part in killing the King in the North. The Westerlings were impoverished. Younger sons would have been the best. Blah, 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 blah. blah. But I thought I would start today to warm up my voice with a reading that I think you guys will recognize. We cannot get out. We cannot get out. They have taken the bridge in Second Hall. Frar and Loni and Nolly fell there. The pool is up to the wall at Westgate. The watcher in the water took oin. We cannot get out. The end comes. Drums. Drums in the deep. They are coming. A nice day for a red wedding. I count the days until you share my bed again. Return to me soon and I will give you many true-born sons to take the place of your dear Domeric. The wind, the world of ice and fire. The north. Holy shit. The winds of winter of ice and fire. The north. Mm -hmm. 